This is the Women's Protection and Empowerment Podcast, where we give space to talking about women and girls in humanitarian settings. At International Rescue Committee, we deliver innovative programs focused on preventing and responding to violence against women and girls. We are in pursuit of a world where women and girls live free from violence as valued and respected members of their community. This movement is about equitable access to opportunities. Empowering women and girls means a lot for development of the next generation, and it's important for the development of a country. It's about catalysts for change. Women and girls are not just the faces of poverty. They are also the key to overcoming. It's about voice and respect. The path to victory is still long, and I'm not ready to give up. This has become to me more than a work, but a passion to still remain the girls are gaining what has been for long denied to them. From IRC, this is the WPE Podcast. I'm Christy Crabtree. This is a special episode of the Women's Protection and Empowerment Podcast. We're talking with one of the authors of Data Feminism, Professor Catherine D'Agnazio. She's director of the Data and Feminism Lab at MIT, which uses data and computational methods to work towards gender and racial equity, particularly as they relate to space and place. So I'll read some excerpts from the book and we'll chat with the author about them as well. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Christy. It's a real pleasure to be here. Reading Data Feminism, it's a book about taking a feminist approach or lens to data, but it's really a book about power and data. And there are so many times reading this book when I felt that you articulated something I have felt, albeit in your much more eloquent and powerful way. And I'd like to start with one early on in the book that really made me feel seen and heard. You have a quote in there, the process of converting life experience into data always necessarily entails a reduction of that experience. You go in in that same section to talk about how feminism can help remind us that before there are data, there are people, people who offer up their experience to be counted and analyzed. Given our work in the field of gender-based violence and women and girls empowerment, this is a constant discussion point for us. When we're training on information systems that track violence against women and girls, we try to have some representation in the room of a person. So people remember the humanity in all of this. But I'm curious from your perspective, what are other ways you talk about, think about, suggest that people bring this humanity into their analysis or discussions of data? Yeah, thank you for pulling out those specific sections. Yeah, I think that's really real. And in many ways, Data Feminism as a book is about all of the ways that we can't expect data science to be commensurate with human experience, even as we work with many data sets that are about human beings in a whole lot of different ways. So like we say, it's always going to be a reduction you know, part of the purpose of data is that it would hopefully be a helpful reduction that would permit us to do certain things. But of course, it could never encompass the complexity of the lived human reality. And regarding the work in gender-based violence, this comes up, I think, in a lot of spaces, especially when we talk about sexism or racism or other forms of oppression. There is violence and there is trauma. And when we collect data around those things we are navigating and we have to navigate that trauma. I really like your 
idea here of having a representation in the room of a person. I was curious about that. Of like, is it an actual person or do you have a, a photograph or something like that? So that's one question. You know, this reminds me, I'm doing a project right now as part of the continuation of this work uh, that's about feminicide. So gender-based killing of women and girls. And we've been interviewing folks that are tracking feminicide in various different ways. And we recently interviewed a man who's collecting data about Black women who've been killed in the context of police violence. But the organization he works in also works directly with families as well. And so he was telling us a little bit about the dissonance because he gets into this sort of mode of data logging where he's reading news articles, he's entering names and databases, but then at the same time, the organization works with the families who are dealing with the loss of their mother, daughter, sister. And he describes a sort of dissonance and how he appreciates that dissonance because it does help him when he's doing the data to remember, to come back to the import of what that one row in his database mm -hmm. actually means for the many, many dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people that have been affected by that loss, right? And so I think the thing that I come back to too is how do we, and that's part of, kind of what we argue in the book is how do we value lived experience as knowledge and not get so wrapped up in data sets that they become somehow more true than, mm -hmm. than the person sitting in front of you. And also allowing ways for emotion to be part of that process. I think that's also the way that you remember is you allow yourself to be affected emotionally by these things because these are deeply traumatizing things. This is violence. This is trauma. You know, one of the things that I have admired about the folks who are working to log feminicide is that they really allow themselves to be affected. And in many ways, they they are emotionally invested in using data to memorialize the lives of women and girls who have been killed. And so there's this really direct emotional commitment on their part, seeking justice for their memory. And so I think it's that. I think not imagining that the only way to seek justice is through more data necessarily, but it's also through how we care for that data and how we engage with that data and how we allow that data to enter into us to become part of our life experience. Typically in our trainings, we will take a moment at the beginning and draw a kind of outline of a woman or girl on a flip chart and put it in the room and talk about some of the things that they go through before they've come to seek services with us. So that's one of the ways we bring humanity, but I also like this idea of bringing some of the emotion into the room not just having it you know, on a piece of paper on a flip chart, which is something, but yeah. talking a little bit about what does it mean when someone becomes part of this data set and that sounds very cold, but what have they gone through up to that point? Yeah, and it doesn't always have to be cold. One of the other folks we interviewed for the same study, she was saying how, this is a woman who collects data about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And she was saying that for one of the families requested for their daughter to be put in the database because it was a way for her to be counted. Being in that collection was a way of her memory counting. It doesn't always have to be an act of reduction, but it does matter who's doing the counting and what it's for and whether or not it's extractive or not. I like that. I rarely have that perspective from a more empowering place, but I think that is important to capture because 
it is an act of individual advocacy, right? To make the decision that you want to have your daughter or you want to have your own numbers counted as something like that. You're putting your voice out there in a way that I hadn't thought about before. I want to talk a little bit about another part of your book that struck me and is related to this, which is about telling the whole story with data. In the book, you talk about Black maternal mortality rates and how this feeds into a deficit narrative, portraying Black women as victims. When I read this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so similar to the problems we have in our work because yes, we use the terminology of survivor instead of victim, but the data we collect and that we share with stakeholders is typically data surrounding an act of violence, an act of systemic violence. So when this is the work we do in response to and in aid of women and girls recovery and healing, how can we tell the whole story with that data? Yeah, this is such an important question. And I have to say, this is a lesson that I feel like I have learned several times over, unfortunately, because often what we want to do with data, those of us who are kind of in the data science world or in the data for good world, is we want to tell a story of injustice. And we want to tell a story that's structural, that we want to affect either policy change or we want to gather political will for changing something. And so we come armed with these statistics and numbers and we try to show this is a big problem. Here's the scope of it. We've quantified it and we come in in this very righteous way. And I think that what this lends itself to, particularly in a U.S. context, that's what we try to get out with the Black maternal mortality. Often the people that are coming in with the data are the white people. And often the figure that they embody, the way they enter the space is as this sort of white savior figure. You know, this is happening to black women. We must defend the black women. And so we have this great quote from Kimberly Seals Allard in the book, who's a journalist and an advocate for breastfeeding and just really amazing person. And she's like, you know, when we come in like this, when we tell stories like this and use statistics in this way, then this sends the message that Black women need to be saved by white women, or they need to be saved by white institutions. When in fact, that's not the case. And if we went a little bit further, especially as white people, and actually looked at what's been going on, if you look at the Black maternal mortality crisis, it's been a crisis long before the ProPublica story that broke the news of the crisis happened, right? And the groups like Sister Song and Reach Our Sisters Everywhere, Black Mothers Breastfeeding Association, all of these sort of Black-led reproductive justice groups have been working for a very long time. They know these numbers. It's just that they have not had the platform to be able to implement the changes that they're advocating for that come from the community itself. So I think this is the kind of tension that we need to navigate as we use data and statistics. And that's why it really matters who's doing the speaking, who's doing the framing, and how are you portraying the quote-unquote victims of injustice. And that's where we get into the deficit narratives. And and I do see this happen actually a lot in the international development world with women specifically, where it's like you have a lot of deficit narratives about women. Women are poor. Women are victims of violence. Women are disempowered. Women are this, women are that. So that leads to this kind of conclusion. The takeaway is let's save the women, (laughs) you know? And sometimes there's a kind of strategic essentialism. Sometimes you need to 
do that to get some particular funding to do some particular thing. But I think the risk comes when we start to actually believe those things or believe that we are the saviors and that causes us to ignore some of the really amazing work that comes from the grassroots, that comes from the communities, that comes from the people who actually know how to solve the issues that they're facing. And so at least for me, when I'm doing this kind of work, I try to really ask myself, okay, if I've made a map or a chart or whatever it is, what story is this telling about the people that I am talking about? And are they portrayed in a way that shows their agency, that is lifting up their efforts, that is building on their activism, that's building on their history of articulating their own solutions to the issues? I mean, that's kind of the antidote to the deficit narrative is doing your homework and researching the ways that people have always and already suggested really good solutions to their own problems. <laughs> I think that connects up with what we're seeing more of in the humanitarian space, which is around designing programs with the user, which in some ways feels borrowed from the technology world to design with the user in quotes. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's coming into the humanitarian space. It's been there for a while, but now people are talking about it in a more thoughtful, meaningful way. I would love to see that same thing with data as well that's coming out. You know, we talk about yeah. accountability and sharing back statistics, but also saying, hey, what is the message you want to convey with this report that says there's been an increase in, or there's very stable high numbers of intimate partner violence in this crisis setting? I yes. think those things go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk a little bit about these kind of participatory methods in chapter five, which is about pluralism. So how do we incorporate more voices into a data science process. And I think that's exactly it. It's thinking about how do we ensure that our data science is not extractive? It's not just, oh, okay, I just have to go around and do the survey and get what birth control methods do you use? Okay, next. But actually, how do we solve these longstanding issues? What are your ideas for doing them, et cetera, et cetera. And then how do we be in dialogue and give back to these communities? Academia has a sort of bad history and relationship to this as well is sort of this way of going into communities that is very extractive because it's about a kind of knowledge that is then being produced for elite academic audience and then the knowledge never comes back into the community. So they've given away some of their cultural property or knowledge or whatever it might be or even just time and then it never comes back and never see the benefits from that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I feel like this is something we see so regularly. It was both nice to read it in the book, your perspective on that, to know that it's not just us, it's something that's happening broadly in the data world. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm also curious how we navigate those power dynamics. We see in the humanitarian world, we're collecting data virtually at, at every point of interaction with someone. And mm -hmm. Some of that we use for our own accountability, some of it for measurement, some for very practical things like how many staff do we need to hire to do this project? But some of this feels very paternalistic and it feels sometimes like we're advocating for things like consent and confidentiality, data minimization with stakeholders that maybe fund managing agencies or have more power in a setting when we're not actually getting that concern from the populations we serve. And I sometimes feel like we're playing a game of leapfrog and trying yeah. to defend someone's rights when they're not asking for that. But I also feel like there's such a lack of 
empowerment in so many of these situations, the way that crisis settings we're responding and the structures around that, that there may not even be space for that. So I'm just curious to hear from you what your perspective is on that, how you might navigate something like that when the population that you're working with isn't raising these kind of issues or concerns about consent, confidentiality, that kind of thing. That's so interesting. Yeah, I struggle sometimes with research. We have institutional research boards, and so we do these consent forms. And I often reflect about how even the consent forms themselves are there to ensure that you're abiding by these ethics and so on and so forth. But then they themselves as cultural objects and artifacts, they create this hierarchy where I'm presenting somebody outside of academia with this, like a breastfeeding mom, to just to give you an example. I'm giving a breastfeeding mom this really long form, <laughs> just like with a lot of complicated language in it. That's like, and then thus and we shall and thus and this, and then you have to sign here. And they don't know what they're signing, you know. I mean, I, I try obviously try to explain it in better words than I just did right there. But then they're signing something and it feels like a legal document and a legal relationship. And there's a kind of whole dynamics of that that is, I think, uncomfortable, but also not totally working in the best interest mm -hmm. of what it's supposed to be working for. And so I think that's one thing. I mean, one of the ways that I've sort of navigated that is writing out when I do collaborations with groups outside of academia, writing out MOUs, Memoranda of Understanding. So we spell out in very clear language that's not legalese and it's not IRB language, mm -hmm. sort of what are our expectations of the project and what are we going to do together and what are our values and commitments to each other. So that's one thing that's just to try to put ourselves on equal footing and not reproduce some of these mm -hmm. same yeah. hierarchies. And then I think the other thing Honestly, in, in I think probably both of these spaces, both humanitarian aid and academia, is that so much of what we do is driven by where the funding is coming from and who's funding yes. and what are their expectations. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> and so I think a real way of making change in this space is actually educating funders and shifting funding priorities. So it's not only about we will acquire this amount of data or we will comprehensively cover this particular region or, or maybe we will but in combination with much more grounded you know you kind of ground truth some of your quantitative data collection with more qualitative participatory methods and really even just as a way of ensuring that what you're doing is relevant and grounded and meaningful for our community and so really investing in the time and space to be doing the work in a very participatory way with folks on the ground. Again, in crisis situations, I think that's, that becomes really tricky. <laughs> I can imagine, I mean, that's not a space that I've worked in, but I could just imagine just the, because I think time in those cases is sort of your enemy for this kind of work that's really grounded because really what you need to do is develop real meaningful relationships with folks across significant power differentials and that is not easy <laughs> you know yeah. that is work that takes a real commitment it takes time and it takes an investment so I feel like we need to educate funders to invest in that kind of work and I think the argument there is for overall improvement and quality basically just quality assurance and risk management actually but really it is that the money has to come 
from somewhere, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're working in a lot of the settings where we're collecting this kind of data, it's in the context of a service being provided. So we have social workers or caseworkers in a setting providing psychosocial counseling to someone and case management to help connect them with you know, needed and available services. And so I feel like we're rounding out something in that we're collecting data in the context. It's not on top of anything we would normally do. So that part of the process feels a little bit less extractive. It yeah. becomes abstractive when we move beyond our organization, when that data leaves our organization. And that's one of the things I wanted to chat with you about as well as you talk in the book about we've gotten to a point where data is used almost exclusively in the service of profit for a few, surveillance of the minoritized and efficiency amid scarcity. So I'm curious to hear from you, how else you think we should be using data in humanitarian spaces? I mean, we really get stuck in the trap of surveillance and efficiency, looking at ways that we can do things better, cheaper, faster, and then also that we're kind of tracking what people are doing. And we have to report on a lot of this as outputs, evidence of our work. There are trends in the field that are looking at outcomes, and that's really great, you know, looking at improvements in psychosocial well-being or reductions in felt stigma. But we're really still chasing after outputs most of the time, and those being related to surveillance and efficiency. So I'm just curious if you have any prompts or maybe another special antidote on this one that might kick us in the right direction in the humanitarian space. Yeah, that's such an important question. And I mean, it just so much though, again, has to do with the allocation of resources, like how resources are organized and who has them and who doesn't, you know? So I think the place where I see a lot of interesting energy is in thinking about not only how do we allocate funds to highly professional, technical humanitarian groups, but in fact, how do we allocate funds to folks on the ground to basically do sort of data literacy training, capacity building so that they might do their own work with data, if that makes sense. I mean, and that's where I see the most, and this just might be because of my own political bent, but in terms of justice, so much of the exciting work, or at least in terms of data justice, so much of the exciting work is coming from, I would say, sites that are slightly outside of mainstream institutional actors. So they're coming from data journalists, for example, or from artists, or they're coming from social movements and activists. And so it's sort of really thinking about how do we build capacity in those kinds of worlds, which you might characterize as an academic way to say it might be counter hegemonic. They're not mainstream actors. It's not the same as a UN agency or something like that, you know? So they're outside of institutions and yet they're pushing for justice, but they also are needing resources and they're also needing literacy and training and things like that. And so in a way, I think the way to get outside of that is to build capacity for other actors to be able to do work with data science. And, and maybe also look to those other actors for inspiration and models of how to really do data in a just way. The frustrations that you're describing to me relate again to the funding question, yeah. basically, and where you're beholden to these particular ways of doing things because they're the particular ways that funders have been normalized. 
they're also like a very centralized model where you suck up the data for a central institution and then the central institution can see the dashboard and make the right decisions or something like yeah. that. What happens if instead of kind of centralizing all of those things, what happens if we push a lot of those same resources to the other nodes in the network? And so I think that's for me where I see a lot of the hope for actually doing real justice work with data is in those smaller, more activist things. I've been very inspired right now by the folks we've been interviewing to collect feminicide data because they're amidst very, they're mostly feminist collectives. They're very small nonprofits. They're journalists. Sometimes they're just literally just individual people, <laughs> you know, collecting feminicide data for the whole country. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're doing this really important accountability work. And to me, that work feels very necessary and also mm-hmm. feels necessary to hold those large institutions, in this case, most of them are targeting the state as being uh, implicated in feminicide, but to hold those larger institutions accountable and build political will towards change. I really do think those sort of outside the mainstream organizations, they need help and funding, (laughs) but I think they're actually really pioneering some really amazing data practices as well. (laughs) If you continue to just speak our language in a more thoughtful way, I think one of the things we've been struggling with and fighting for within IRC is to get funding for these things that frankly donors are not that interested in. So when you're talking about data literacy, I absolutely love that idea. And I think where we're struggling even before that is with digital literacy. Yeah. The populations that we're working with, yes, there are some components of data literacy we could jump into, but I also feel like that has to be paired with or come after some kind of digital literacy so people that we're working with, in our case, women and girls, are Mm -hmm. aware of the capacities, the limitations, the opportunities with technology and how that data plugs into that piece. Especially during COVID, something that's been incredibly frustrating for us is to see everyone be like, we'll make it an app or we'll make this this product (laughs) remote, digital, solved now. And, And we're like, you're leaving out half of the population who doesn't have access to that for a number of reasons that we could tackle in very safe, supportive ways based off structure we already have. So I I hope, you know, there's some donor out there listens to this and and reaches out because I think there's a lot of space in this to do what you just said, to really focus this data, center it in accountability and bring it back to the populations that we're working with and say like, what does this mean to you? What do you want to do with this? What can we do with this? How can we plug it back into programs? How can we partner? I mean, there's a whole ecosystem around that that's much more holistic Mm -hmm. and close to the ground totally yeah and I couldn't agree more in terms of digital literacy as well critique the sort of app I actually have run feminist hackathons but we try to make them very different from the we'll solve the world's social problems with another beer app (laughs) (laughs) yeah I want to talk a little bit about the focus of your book. We've talked a lot about data and that's kind of our center point in our work at IRC and on GBVIMS. But I want to talk a little bit about data science. In the humanitarian world, we're just kind of dipping our toes into machine learning. I'm curious to hear from you what you think we should be prioritizing in terms of these more advanced models of analysis, be it machine learning or something outside of that AI space. What do you think we should be moving into? I know there's a lot of hype around anything related to AI and machine learning, but yeah, what's your perspective? 
Yeah, I, I never dismiss tools out of hand. It always more has to do with what's the context and, you know, the questions. I think we have to look at that we don't analyze enough are the ones we call who questions in the book. So it's sort of like, if we're building a machine learning model of some kind, or we're doing some kind of artificial intelligence or predictive analysis or something like that, I think the question is always for whom, about whom, to do what, with whose values, what kinds of decisions is this feeding into, and so on. And so I'm very excited by a lot of different kinds of natural language processing techniques, ways of turning unstructured data into knowledge. In fact, the reason why we're interviewing these activists who work on feminicide data is actually we're building a system that uses machine learning to try to reduce the amount of labor that these activists spend monitoring news articles to put into their databases. So we're actively trying to use machine learning to reduce their labor in the form of time, but also their labor in the form of the emotional, you know, it is not pleasant, as I'm sure you know, to read about violent death. And so this is a lot of the work that they do and it takes a real toll. So it's also partially to try to reduce some of that labor. So we're building an alert system for these groups. So I think that machine learning and AI can have their place. But again, it really is thinking about for whom is it? We've been very clear in the work that we're doing. This is for the activists themselves to fit into their existing workflow. Mm -hmm. It's not for MIT to centralize a giant database of global feminicide. That would be another way to do that project. And that would be probably actually the more mainstream common way to do it where I, as the researcher, I'm like, okay, I'm going to amass the largest archive of feminicide in the world, (laughs) you know? And so that's why I think in a way the technical decisions matter less and the for whom questions matter more and thinking about if we're going to use machine learning and AI could be great for scanning large amounts of information and classifying them in various ways, but who do they help? That's the thing that really needs to be answered is whose decisions, who are you trying to empower, whose time are you trying to save, and that kind of thing. So one of the central questions of your book is how can we use data to remake the world, which for our audience, I would reword slightly to say how can we use data to remake humanitarian spaces with a focus on women and girls. And perhaps part of that answer is increasing our advocacy to your point that minoritized individuals or groups should not have to repeatedly prove that their experience of oppression is real. But what else would you add to that? Is there something in the humanitarian space that screams to you as an opportunity missed that we could use data to remake a safer, more equitable world for women and girls? I mean, maybe it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I often think part of it is about how do we really make space for women and girls and in general minoritized folks to truly be the authors of their own futures. And so thinking about how do we do that kind of, whether it's digital literacy or stabilization of any kind of unsafe situations that they're experiencing and then helping them to participate in creating their own futures. Often organizations that use data, I would assume in the humanitarian space as well, 
you know, data are often used for management of large populations. And it, it kind of goes back to the idea of forgetting the people that are part of those populations, right? And so how do we recenter ourselves in their experiences and also make space for them to lead rather than for these sort of management institutions to lead? And I think that's sort of the more difficult question because it scales slightly less well (laughs) because what conditions are made for women and girls to lead in one place may look really different Mm. conditions that are needed for women and girls to lead in another place. But I think part of it is not only about helping women and girls, but it's also about helping get the dominant groups out of the way (laughs) (laughs) and recognizing that a lot of these humanitarian groups and a lot of the management institutions, they are led by dominant group people. They are often representatives of the dominant ideology that's continuing to keep women and girls in that paternalistic situation. I think one of the big questions is if you're part of a group like that is how do you get out of your own way? How do you actually fix the problem rather than just sort of manage the problem that you yourself also play a role in creating and reinforcing the world. And I think that's tricky, but I think it always comes back to what we value with, you know? So I think it comes back to valuing different things and valuing the building of relationships across differentials of power as a kind of baseline thing. And then the transformation of our practices, you know, real legit focus on collaboration is not just how do we help these folks, but how do they help us transform the world that produced us in which a world that we're successful because precisely of their oppression. I'm curious if you've seen any models for this that might be something that we could replicate in our space. And just to give some background on that, one thing that typically happens in GBV humanitarian space is that we have a kind of interagency group that has INGOs, local NGOs, sometimes CBOs, UN agencies, sometimes government actors, all involved, and they're kind of making decisions about various things that happen around GBV services in response to those. Those are usually the spaces where we share data, and that data now is more often anonymized aggregate data. So that's at least Mm -hmm. progress in our space. I'm curious, thinking about that structure, if there are models you know of or an approach where we could bring women and girls into that, are we talking about having a focus group that we bring in or a reference group or steering committee or something like that of women and girls that are in the community without necessarily being like, these are survivors that have reported stuff, but women and girls in the community who could say, hey, why are you guys tracking all this information about how they heard about the service? What we really want to know about is have more information about profiles of perpetrators or that kind of thing. How would you recommend or what models have you seen for that kind of engagement? Yeah, I love that idea, actually, because I do think it's about how do you set up structures of both two-way communication and learning and also accountability for the institutions that you're part of. And so one example that I'll talk about that comes from my own experience was we ran, like I said, this feminist hackathon. It was about breastfeeding in the United States, and it was called Make the Breast Pump Not Suck Hackathon, which is lovely. And one of the things that we did in the 2018 version, we really wanted to focus on racial equity as part of that. And yet when we started, we were a group of 
white women. So we were not the right people to know how to do that. So we quickly brought on a collaborator, a black woman who has worked a lot in equity spaces. That was the first thing, or actually two black women, because ultimately we also had a black woman who worked on the policy side of things as well. And then we set up two structures, which really helped us. And so one of those was an advisory board. And that was not only women of color, but I think it was majority women of color. All folks were experts were coming from different geographies around the U.S. Some were medical doctors, some were community executive directors, community organizations, stuff like this. And they really held us accountable and really called us out lovely ways. <laughs> like I say, I've like learned a ton from doing that project. So they were the advisory board. And then we also ran a program prior to the hackathon in what we called the community innovation program. We made micro grants to four different groups from around the country who were leaders in breastfeeding for their communities and mainly communities of color. So four groups were funded. And then we had regular meetings actually with them as well to be co-developing their project with them. And from those two structures, we learned so much. So on the one hand, we had a structure who was sort of officially an advisory board who we could go to with these things and concerns and questions. We kind of opened up a structure in which we wanted them to give us critical feedback. And then on the other hand, we didn't expect for the community innovation teams to sort of become an advisory board, but actually they became kind of an informal advisory board because we ended up consulting with them about a ton of different ways that we could organize the hackathon and the events and the prizes and all these different things. So they ultimately became co-design partners on the actual culmination of the event. And so I think these are the kinds of things to think about, like, how do we build these kinds of structures that acknowledge that we ourselves or not us personally, but our institutions might have good intentions, but we might not always be following the best practices that would be in the best interest of the community. And so how do we set up the lines of dialogue and accountability to help us do that? And how do we fund that? So I love your idea of the advisory board. And, you know, I think the one thing to be careful of, which I think you already were alluding to, you obviously don't want to be re-traumatizing survivors, of course. But I think working with folks who are already leaders in their community or who are already leaders of survivor groups, those would be probably the best folks would be well positioned to both be able to interface with larger institutions run by more dominant group people and give you helpful and critical feedback. I I think that's what you want. You basically want to bring in any folks who have been critical and say, hey, we want to work together and, and hopefully transform our own institution. Yeah. I mean, in less than an hour, you've got my wheels spinning on so many ideas. I want to just send you the most massive thank you for coming on the podcast today. I've gotten so many good ideas from this. I think anyone that's listening will have them as well. And I hope that we see some of these changes in the space in a very real way. I wanted to just tell you personally that I feel really lucky because all of us at IRC have been really geeking out over your book. <laughs> so oh, thank you. That's so heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've all got uh, pages dog-eared in it, and I feel like the lucky one to speak with you today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind to say that. I mean, there's nothing that warms my heart more than people like, oh, we love the book, or we read it, or we've been talking about it, or would highly recommend to anyone who's listening to pick up a copy. Again, it's Data Feminism. Read it right in the margins, bookmark it as we have. It will be something that you not only enjoy reading, but go back to as a reference point. The book is an absolute gem. 
So thank you again for coming on the podcast and hopefully this isn't the last time. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds great. Safety, voice, respect. Join the WPE movement.